many consider the reign of King Viserys I to represent the apex of Targaryen power in Westeros. Beyond a doubt, there were more lords and princes claiming the blood of the dragon than at any period before or since. Though the Targaryens had continued their traditional practice of marrying brother to sister, uncle to niece, and cousin to cousin wherever possible, there had also been important matches outside the royal family, the fruit of which would play important roles in the war to come. There were more dragons than ever before as well, and several of the she-dragons were regularly producing clutches of eggs. Not all of these eggs hatched, but many did, and it became customary for the fathers and mothers of newborn princelings to place a dragon's egg in their cradles, following a tradition that Princess Rhaena had begun many years before. The children so blessed invariably bonded with the hatchlings to become dragon riders. At the end of the previous installment in this series, we mentioned how few dragons remain in Westeros, both the metaphorical and the literal sort, a stark contrast with the abundance indicated in the opening quote. The Dance of the Dragons featured very few dragons now, and they were mostly very small ones. Five children, one of whom had long been given up for dead, and one very damaged adult, and a mere four actual dragons, of which only one, a hatchling, remained under Targaryen control. That shows how very far things fell apart, from the apex of Targaryen power to this low point, all in about two and a half years. A new danger emerges from this. If too many of the very few remaining Targaryens die, it would cause fresh claims for the Iron Throne to be made. An entirely new royal house would have to be established, and that would surely be bloody business. But despite this threat, and how much the dragons had torn the realm and themselves apart, they still had room to destroy themselves some more. There were still armies in the field, power to be taken, glory to be won, and backs to be stabbed. A perfect example is the depredations of the Ironborn under the Red Kraken, whom we have devoted a bonus episode to, with another on the way, about how and by whom he was eventually defeated. These episodes are available by becoming a patron of either Radio Westeros or History of Westeros. Lord Dalton could never have brought back the old way if the dragons weren't so busy killing each other. There was no king's peace, nor a queen's peace either. So whether west or east, it was the worst of times, and the worst of times can be the best of times for the worst of people. When no authority enforces the law, criminals know it's the best time to commit crimes. When the vulnerable are exposed, the predators emerge. Or to use more familiar language, when the dragons cease their dancing, the crows feast. When we speak of dragons, sometimes the meaning is flexible. We can mean human or animal or both. Likewise, oftentimes the worst crows are the human sort. Nonetheless, the worst damage to the realm and its ruling dynasty continued to be served by none other than House Targaryen itself, whose continued infighting now comprised mostly the threats of opponents so weakened by self-inflicted wounds that the field of battle was more or less reduced to the confines of the Red Keep itself. Mostly, but with those armies still in the field, certainly not all, as we'll see. In the previous installment, we concluded that while the dying of the dragons has been a theme for this entire series, it might seem like House Targaryen had hit its low point. But in fact, there's more damage to come and some pretty far-reaching consequences to discuss 
as we continue this coverage. Hello and welcome to the sixth instalment of Radio Westeros plus History of Westeros covering the Dance of the Dragons. Those of you that have been following along might recall that we started this series back in 2019, unsure of exactly how many episodes it would take us to cover what was arguably a defining event for the Targaryen dynasty as we know them from recent Westerosi history. It soon became clear that seven episodes was not only symbolically fitting, but entirely appropriate, given the sprawling nature of the history. And so this is the penultimate episode of the series. A lot has happened since 2019 in the real world and in both of our podcasts. Perhaps most notable in the context of this series would be the release of HBO's television series based on the same event, which we've covered on both podcasts as well, and as of this recording, are now awaiting the second season eagerly. Speaking of the podcast, and before we get started, we want to mention with extreme gratitude that both Radio Westeros and History of Westeros are supported by our patrons, many of whom have been with one or both shows since this series began, if not longer. So let's take this moment to thank the following. Radio Westeros Flaming Lightbringer patron TJ Harrington, Dragonsteel patron Peter, and Pale as Milk Glass patrons Alex, aka and the Company of the Cats, Chris B, The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Maltude, Empty Walls, first of his name, and John Wergarian, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, The Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jibjab, Hot Dog Shop, House Motto, We Forge the Chains We Wear in Life. Throughout this series, we've used a variety of historical parallels, several literary parallels, and plenty of references to miscellaneous other real-world things, especially chess. In this episode, we'll see most of those themes return as the Dance of the Dragons runs out of steam thanks to the overwhelming amount of loss throughout Westeros. The various conflicts around the continent caused such a loss of life that there weren't enough people to fight the battles anymore, whether prince or pauper, Knight or dragon? Looking back, House Targaryen has accomplished nothing other than severely and permanently weakening themselves. Throughout this episode, we'll see examples of the realm returning to a state not unlike what it had been before the war, only worse. We'll see the war return to how it began, back before it was certain to become a war at all. Back when it was still a matter of intrigue and deals, double deals, and a whole lot of intimidation and arguing, and eventually a coup. It began mostly in the Red Keep, and to a lesser extent Dragonstone, and so shall it end. The mighty have fallen. Back to square one. And now, while we mentioned already that most of the action going forward will be centered on the Red Keep, most is not all, and there are still some significant military engagements yet to be covered. So let's assess where the blacks and greens are at this late stage starting with the reminder that neither side had a battle-worthy dragon. The Blacks had more support and soldiers, far and wide, but they had a severe leadership problem. Rhaenyra and Daemon were dead, and Bela and Aegon the Younger were captives of the Greens. Alan Valarian held Driftmark while Lord Corlys Valarian was at the Red Keep, either still a prisoner in the Black Cells, if Yandel is to be believed, or having been released after Rhaenyra's flight, if we believe Gildane. The Greens were in almost the reverse position. Their claimant was still alive and claiming victory, but he was severely and permanently injured, trapped on Dragonstone with neither ship nor dragon to transport him to the capital, and his only heir was a girl, somewhat unsuitable for a faction that had ostensibly fought an entire civil war 
due to their refusal to accept a woman on the Iron Throne. They also had fewer soldiers and fewer ships, but Lord Lara Strong and Dowager Queen Alicent remained, also at the Red Keep. In spite of which, neither side actually held King's Landing itself, which was still suffering under the chaotic moon of the Three Kings. Though that was about to change. Stag takes King's Landing. On the western shores of Blackwater Bay, meanwhile, the moon of the Three Kings came to a sudden end when an army appeared outside the walls of King's Landing. For more than half a year, the city had lived in fear of Ormond Hightower's advancing host. But when the assault came, it came not from Old Town by way of Bitterbridge and Tumbleton, but up the King's Road from Storm's End. House Baratheon had yet to make their mark upon the war. While Aemon Wanai had gained their support for the Greens by agreeing to marry one of Lord Boros's daughters, Baratheon soldiers had not taken part in a single battle. Perhaps the sight of dragons fighting above Shipbreaker Bay had been a sobering reminder of the power of both sides of House Targaryen. Perhaps Lord Boros was reminded of past events such as the Field of Fire and wished not to be a part of a repeat. Perhaps he was even a little abashed that the death of his cousin's son had occurred on his doorstep. Or perhaps he was, as we suggested in our last episode, none too pleased that Aemon One-Eye had taken up with a bastard daughter of House Strong at Hall. Maybe it was all of the above. Or perhaps his plans changed out of necessity. The last time we heard from Lord Boros was this. Lord Boros Baratheon called his banners and assembled near 6,000 men at Storm's End with the avowed intent of marching on King's Landing, only to lead them south into the mountains instead. We're told the new Vulture King had arisen in the Dornish marches. This could have been a truly legitimate threat or a conveniently timed excuse to be elsewhere while the realm tore itself apart, allowing Boros to remain strong while the rest lost power. Now, with the death of Rhaenyra and perhaps more significantly the loss of so many dragons, the winds of change were blowing slightly more in his favor. And so Lord Boros departed Storm's End with 600 knights and 4,000 men-at-arms, striking up the King's Road for the capital. Arriving on the south bank of the Blackwater Rush some weeks after Aegon's triumphant message reached Storm's End, his army posed a potent threat to King's Landing. Though the mob rule in the city had been enough to decimate the glory of House Targaryen, their mighty dragons, and to drive Queen Rhaenyra from her throne, few remained who had the skill or will to confront the army of the Stormlands in open warfare. From Visenya's hill, the shepherd commanded his followers to rush the riverbank to prevent Lord Boros from crossing, but his influence was already waning, and his sermons were now attracting only hundreds, where his audience had once briefly numbered in the thousands. Few obeyed his commands. The reaction of Game and Palehair's followers from atop Rhaenys's hill is not recorded, but in the Red Keep, the pretender Tristane Truefire observed the Stormlanders with Sir Perkin the Flea and Larry Strong. The extremely crafty master of whispers, who had saved his own life by pretending to support King Tristane, now convinced the boy that the best approach was a meeting, telling him, We do not have the strength to oppose such a host, sire. But perhaps words can succeed where swords must fail. Send me to parley with them. And so Lord Laris was tasked with crossing the river under a flag of truce. 
In an inexplicably terrible decision on the part of Tristane, Laris would be joined by Grandmaster Orwile and the Dowager Queen Alicent, but not a single member of his own supporters. Given the outcome, there can be no doubt that Sir Perkin the Flea was colluding with the clubfoot by this time in order to save his own skin, and that Tristane's days were numbered the moment he approved of this plan. And so perhaps the boy had no true supporters to speak for him. Thus, the Moon of the Three Kings, one of the sorriest chapters in King's Landing history, would end as the Dance of the Dragons had begun, with a secret council. The Secret Council The Lord of Storm's End received them in a pavilion on the edge of the Kingswood, as his men felled trees to build rafts for the river crossing. There Queen Alicent received the glad news that her granddaughter Jahira, the only surviving child of her son Aegon and daughter Helena, had been delivered safely to Storm's End by Sir Willisfell of the Kingsguard. The Dowager Queen wept tears of joy. This secret council met on the south bank of the Blackwater Rush, where Lord Boris's descendant Stannis Baratheon would suffer a stinging defeat 150 years later. The council, Munkin tells us, was marked by, quote, betrayals and betrothals, and indeed at the core of its agenda was the betrayal of Tristane Truefire by his advisors, Lord Laris and Sir Perkin. In exchange for pardons for Tristane's followers, most notably himself and Perkin, Laris promised that the Gutter knights who surrounded the pretender would join Lord Boris's Stormlanders in reclaiming the throne for Aegon the Elder. As far as betrothals, recall that Lord Boros had four daughters. It was agreed that the eldest would be betrothed to King Aegon, marking the second time that an agreement had been reached in principle to marry one of his daughters to one of Alicent's sons. Another daughter was promised to Lara Strong, the last male member of a storied house, now Lord of Harrenhal, and an unparalleled player in the Game of Thrones. But Lord Burroughs wasn't done with trying to find husbands for his daughters. There was lengthy discussion on the subject of what to do about the Valerian fleet, poised at Driftmark under the command of Alan Valerian, ready to attack Dragonstone should Aegon the Elder harm his cousins Bela or Aegon the Younger, and more importantly preventing Aegon from sailing triumphantly to King's Landing following the death of his half-sister. With Lord Corley still in King's Landing and presumably at their mercy, Boros suggested that perhaps the offer of a young wife, naturally one of his two remaining daughters, might convince the elder Valarian to rein in his fleet. Dowager Queen Alicent wouldn't hear of it. Lord Corlys, she pointed out, had betrayed her son, and in her opinion, nothing would serve but his death. Laris Strong, his own pardon and betrothal secured, suggested another course of action, and the secret council, done with betrothals, moved back to betrayals with the following plan. Let us make our peace with him now, and make what use of him we can. Once all is safely settled, if we have no further need of House Valerian, we can always lend the stranger a hand. And so it was agreed that, with Sir Perkin's help, Tristane would be summarily deposed and Lord Corliss's cooperation in the matter of the fleet would be sought, after which he'd be casually disposed of. Allison perhaps missed that House Valarian is unlikely to ever be someone they, quote, have no further need of. 
Though the Valarian fleet had lost many ships throughout the war, they had nonetheless regained supremacy of the seas and arguably had a greater level of control than ever before due to the simple fact that dragons could no longer threaten them or any navy in Westeros. This state of affairs was very new, but not everyone realized that. Two people who certainly did were Lord Larys and Lord Corlys himself. The Sea Snake was in a very strong bargaining position, whether Alicent liked it or not, and indeed she did not like it, nor perhaps even fully understand it. So Larry seemingly sidestepped Allison's obstinacy by suggesting a murder he knew they would almost certainly never carry out. There's very few scenarios one can imagine in which the Greens would be better served by making an enemy of such a mighty power. Allison, Laris, and Orwile returned to the Red Keep, where orders were given for Tristane to be taken prisoner and his banners lowered to be replaced with the Golden Dragon of Aegon the Elder. When Lord Boros arrived a short time later, he found the city walls undefended and the gates of the Red Keep open to welcome him and his army of Stormlanders. The following day, the court of Gaemon Pale Hair on Visenya's Hill was destroyed, with five-year-old Gaemon himself brought to the Red Keep in chains, while his mother and her associates were brought along behind, presumably directly to the dungeons beneath the castle. Then it was the shepherd's turn. The shepherd had continued to preach his outrage in the ruins of the dragon pit, though, as we said, the crowds that attended him had shrunk from thousands to hundreds, and those no longer seemed inspired to do violence on his command. When Lord Boris's Stormlanders, accompanied by Sir Perkin and his gutter knights, approached Rhaenys' hill, he commanded his followers to take up arms against them, but most took flight instead. This would prove to be an extremely wise decision on their parts, given what happened to those who stayed and were captured. The man who had incited the infamous storming of the dragon pit and the deaths of five of House Targaryen's precious dragons was found, quote, preaching of doom and devastation amongst the rotting remains of those dragons and taken in chains to the dungeons along with his remaining followers. They collected the five dragon heads as well. With the pretenders and disturbers of the peace all in chains, Queen Alicent, acting in the name of her son, declared a curfew and reestablished the city watch under the command of Sir Perkin to enforce it. Their security ensured, the Secret Council could turn their attention to Lord Corlys Velaryon. The Demands of the Sea Snake Behind the walls of the Red Keep, the Dowager Queen Allison and Lord Larry Strong had offered the Sea Snake his freedom, a full pardon for his treasons, and a place on the King's small council if he would bend his knee to Aegon II as his king and deliver them the swords and sails of Driftmark. The old man had proved to be surprisingly intractable, however. My knees are old and stiff, and do not bend easily, Lord Corliss responded, before setting forth terms of his own. Kildane and Yandel differ on whether Corliss had been freed by Sir Perkin's men following Rhaenyra's flight from the city, or by the group we're calling the Secret Council, after her death and the retaking of the city by Aegon's loyalists. We tend to think the latter makes more sense, since there's no mention of him during the retaking of the Red Keep and the city, it seems likely that he remained in a cell until he was brought before Alicent and Laris to negotiate the terms of the Valerian fleet's surrender. It quickly became apparent that Corlys was not going to be brought in line with either threats or bribery. If it wasn't already obvious, 
Boros Baratheon's suggestion of a marriage alliance had been truly laughable and was rejected by the Sea Snake out of hand. In fact, the offers of his own freedom and a pardon, plus a place on the new King's Council, were nowhere near enough to convince Corlys to deliver his fleet into Aegon's service. Mindful of the fact that Aegon held his granddaughter Bela, along with her half-brother Aegon the Younger on Dragonstone, Lord Corlys demanded pardons, quote, for all those who had fought for Queen Rhaenyra and the immediate release of Lady Bela. For the vengeance-minded Alicent, that might have been a lot to swallow. But Corlys took his demands a step further. The realm had been split asunder, the sea snake stated, and only one thing could join it back together, the marriage of Princess Jehera, Aegon the Elder's only surviving child, to Aegon the Younger, presumed to be Rhaenyra's only surviving child, so that, quote, the two of them might jointly be proclaimed King Aegon's heirs. Alicent, who had lost three children and two grandchildren to this bloody conflict, was outraged at the suggestion that Rhaenyra's son not only be allowed to live, but be named as her son's heir and given her precious granddaughter as his wife. On the brink of refusing, she was only convinced when Laris reminded her of the plan they had made at the secret council, a whisper and reversal of opinion that were surely not lost on the canny sea snake. Nonetheless, the terms were agreed to, and Corlys Velaryon knelt before the Iron Throne and pledged Alicent, standing in for her son, his loyalty to Aegon II and House Targaryen, and was in turn granted his pardon and restored to his old position on the Small Council. In part two of this series, we talked about an event from real-world history that inspired George's writing about the Dance of the Dragons. The Anarchy, a period of civil war in England between King Henry I's designated heir Matilda and her cousin Stephen of Blois over the succession. We're going to revisit that reference for a moment here because there's one more notable parallel that should be acknowledged. The anarchy went on for many years, with each party at some point declaring victory and eventually devolving into a war of attrition that ground into a stalemate. One significant difference with the Dance of the Dragons was that it dragged out so long that Matilda's son and heir, Henry, came of age and entered the fray. To make a very long story short, after the death of his own heir, and for the good of the realm, Stephen of Blois, then in possession of the crown, at length decided that naming his rival's son as his successor would be the best possible solution to end the years of debilitating conflict. So it turns out Corlys Velaryon was an excellent real-world historical company when he suggested his own solution to resolving the conflict in Westeros. And it would further turn out that the agreement was reached just in time. Ravens sent to Driftmark and Dragonstone announcing the terms found Aegon the Elder once again threatening to execute his cousin Bela, while on Driftmark, Alan Velaryon was preparing the fleet for an assault on Dragonstone. Their enmity temporarily rendered pointless. Both Alan and Aegon the Elder instead turned their attentions to preparing for Aegon's return to King's Landing. The supposedly victorious king had been dreaming of this moment since his sister's death when he sent forth a triumphant proclamation notifying the realm that, quote, the pretender is dead and their true king is coming home to reclaim his father's throne. The reality would be somewhat less impressive than he might have hoped. The return of the king. The king's return was far from triumphant. Still unable to walk, his grace was brought through the river gate in a closed litter and carried up Aegon's high hill to the Red Keep through a silent city 
past deserted streets, abandoned homes and looted shops. The steep, narrow steps of the Iron Throne proved impossible for him as well. Henceforth, the restored king must needs hold court from a carved, cushioned wooden seat at the base of the true throne, with a blanket across his twisted, shattered legs. When he was last seen publicly in King's Landing, he had been handsome and crowned. Uninjured, unscarred, and his dragon was considered by many to be the most beautiful of all the dragons, perhaps ever. But since then, he had suffered horrible burns, countless broken bones, and addiction. And Sunfire had been similarly disfigured until his recent death. Having endured so much, including the trauma of the Moon of the Three Kings, the common folk in the capital were probably hoping for a return of some semblance of normalcy, a strong hand to stop the madness and the violence. But what they got instead was a man who was the living embodiment of the dangers of a war fought with dragons. Though he had admirably beaten his addiction to painkillers, his reputation had long been established as a man of low character, of many vices and few virtues. He appeared to be weak of flesh and mind both, inspiring neither love nor respect. While appearances can be deceiving, in this case, they weren't. Not really. The fact that he was returning by ship at all instead of by dragon was in itself a sign of weakness of how the mighty had fallen. An important symbol of rule was missing from the picture. And to add insult to quite literal injury, Alan Valerian made a very particular choice in the ship he sent to deliver Aegon from Dragonstone to King's Landing. Before his return to the Red Keep in a litter, Aegon arrived at the docks aboard Mouse. Alan had command of the Valerian Navy, and though it had suffered substantial losses throughout the war, most of the ships he had left were probably much more suited for transporting royalty. <laughs> he had a flagship and other large warships, for example, 12 of which escorted Mouse to the capital. Instead, Alan chose the battered trading cog belonging to his mother, Marilda, to transport the king. Though the ship had been Marilda's path to wealth through a successful career in trade, it was nonetheless intended to be, and likely was received as, an insult, making for a visual symbol of Aegon's weakness, with the rest of the fleet a show of the continued strength of House Valarian on the waves. Aegon's actual reaction is not recorded, but he surely noticed and understood. Since the ships were crewed by Valarian men, Alan would have been told of the king's anger. I'm guessing he enjoyed himself and wished he could have been there to see it for himself. Alan Valerian would continue to plague the Greens well after this snub as well. House Valerian still had primacy in Blackwater Bay, which had already kept Aegon from ordering the execution of Lady Bela and would soon stay his hand again. Another important but missing reaction is that of Lord Boros. He had arguably played the game wisely, declaring early but avoiding any sort of commitment. Recall that at first he called his banners only to lead them south to fight the Dornish instead of the dragons. When he returned, it was to fight the likes of the Three Kings, and even then only after making arrangements at the Secret Council. While the Greens continued to pile up losses and blood debts, Lord Baratheon, ostensibly one of the most powerful lords in the realm, managed to do almost nothing to help the cause he had angrily declared for at the start. His angry send-off of Lucerys led to the boys' aerial murder by Aemon and Vagar, which of course is often cited as the event that started the war. Lord Boros may have had a huge hand in starting the war, but he sat out nearly all of it until it was almost over. 
he didn't even bring very many men with him, despite not suffering many losses. When he called his banners at the start, only 6,000 came. That is an extremely low number, and according to Gildane, he wasn't even accompanied by that many when he arrived on the banks of the Blackwater. We've seen the Stormlands put tens of thousands of men in the field, both a century before and a century after, so why so few here? One possibility is that Lord Boros may have upset some of his lords, dishonoring them with his choices and the death of Lucerys. Many might have greatly preferred to side with the Blacks, given prior oaths and their preference for Blackwater Bay over the Reach, with whom they had an ancient enmity. Here's where Lord Boros seems to have made a critical error in judgment. Or another critical error in judgment. After his wise decision to stay out of the war early, well, he didn't exactly follow it up with wisdom. It seems clear that Lord Boros hoped, with his continual maneuvering, to see his daughters wed in high places to gain power, ideally royal power, and perhaps he saw himself as a new incarnation of his famous grandfather, Lord Rogar who had sheltered Targaryens fleeing a familial conflict and later shepherded the young Jaehaerys to the throne, gaining enormous power for himself in the process. And Boros did appear to hold a winning hand. Though it was small, he had the only army in or around King's Landing, allowing him to dictate matters of security for the young king, and, as we'll see, most of the military decisions as well. He also had Princess Jahera at Storm's End, from where she could be used as a hostage if necessary to ensure that matters in the capital continued to go his way. And his way was apparently the speedy marriage of his daughter Cassandra to the king, with the obvious intent that eventually Boros Baratheon would become the grandfather of the future king. And Aegon would be needing a hand which was probably very much on Lord Boros's list of goals. But Boros also didn't know the state Aegon was in before he saw him in person. Remember that after Rook's rest, Aegon had been kept from public view, and that few people had seen him on Dragonstone. We can almost be certain that news of his new injuries had not preceded him to the Red Keep, at least not the full extent. Imagine what Boros Baratheon thought when he saw his king, the man to whom he had promised his eldest daughter in marriage and upon whose reign he had hung all his hopes and ambitions. Aegon was scarred and broken, and he lacked what had for generations been the most visible symbol of Targaryen kingship, a dragon. In fact, Aegon was so maimed that he was unable to actually sit the Iron Throne. He could barely even stand unaided, and it would soon become clear that his ability to sire new heirs was in question. In spite of possessing the crown and the sword of his illustrious ancestor Aegon the Conqueror, there wasn't much very kingly or powerful about this Aegon. Aegon also had no army to supplement that of Lord Boros's. He arrived in the capital with only a small band of followers, Sir Martin Waters, who had accompanied him to Dragonstone, the handful of knights who had betrayed his sister there, and the two Toms, Tanglebeard and Tangletongue. Hardly an illustrious company. Whatever Lord Boros may have thought privately is lost to time, since by all outward appearances, having made his choices, he was stuck with them. And what other option did he have but to double down and have faith that one way or another his daughter would become queen and somehow conceive a son? But first... Aegon had to establish himself as the victor of the war, in sole possession of the Iron Throne, and rather than do so by seeking reconciliation and peace, he would embark on a path of vengeance, fully supported by the Lord of Storm's End. 
Targaryen state of mind. Whilst plots and counterplots swelled around him, and enemies closed in from every side, Aegon II remained oblivious. The king was not a well man. Though Aegon essentially lacked or was unable to wield all the physical attributes of Targaryen kingship, he lost no time in bringing the Targaryen house words to bear. Fire and blood would characterize his brief reign as he sought revenge against those who had wronged him, starting with the so-called Dayfly Kings. Tristane Truefire, the squire who claimed to be a bastard son of Aegon's father Viserys, was brought before the king and accused of high treason. Gildane mentions that when Tristane saw his one-time mentor, Sir Perkin the Flea, standing near the king, it, quote, took the heart from him. But he managed to accept his fate, asking only that he be knighted before he died. Aegon agreed, and the boy was dubbed Sir Tristane Fire before Alfred Broom, wielding Blackfire, executed him right then and there in the throne room. Next came Gaemon Palehair, rumored to be Aegon's own bastard child, fathered on a sex worker in the House of Kisses, a brothel located in the city's infamous Street of Silk on Visenya's Hill. Gaemon, named for the historical Targaryen Lord Gaemon the Glorious, brother and husband to Daenys the Dreamer, was five years old and was spared Tristane's fate due to his youth and made a ward of the court. His mother, her partner, and 27 other members of Gaiman's court, noted by Gildane as thieves, drunkards, mummers, beggars, whores, and panders, all too low-born to deserve the sword, were hanged from the walls of the Red Keep. There are two interesting subtleties in these punishments. First, Tristane Fire was given the mercy of execution by the sword, usually reserved for knights and nobility. This may be why he asked to be knighted before his death in the first place, knowing that his origins as a squire to a lowly hedge knight would not be enough to save him from the noose. But there's also a possibility that his appearance, which is never described in the histories, supported his claim of being a Targaryen bastard, in which case there may have been a reluctance to consign him to the fate that was to be suffered by the rabble who supported Gaiman. Given Aegon's otherwise bloodthirsty state of mind, it's hard to come up with any other reason for the brief flash of mercy he showed to the youth, first allowing him to be knighted and then executed with the Conqueror's own sword. Second is the fate of Gaiman Palehair. It's easy enough to say that the king was merciful due to his extreme youth, but the issue of appearance is again significant, not to mention Aegon's own potential personal knowledge of the boy's mother or her place of business. It may well be that in sparing the child and taking him as a ward of the crown, Aegon tacitly admitted to at least the possibility that the boy was his own son. At any rate, with two of the three pretenders now dealt with, it was the shepherd's turn. When he was brought before the king, far from repenting or submitting himself to the crown's mercy, the self-proclaimed prophet told Aegon, quote, we shall meet in hell before this year is done. For those words, Aegon had his tongue removed with hot pincers and then sentenced him and his followers to death by fire. So far, the sentences had more or less followed established norms for dealing with treasonous subjects. Blood, there was a plenty, but with the shepherd, the Targaryen element of fire was brought into play as a tool of the king's justice. None could tell this final act of Aegon's vengeance against the Dayfly kings better than Gildane has already done. 
On the last day of the year, 241 barefoot lambs, the shepherds' most fervid and devoted followers, were covered with pitch and chain to poles along the broad cobbled thoroughfare that ran eastward from Cobbler Square to the Dragon Pit. As the city's seps rang their bells to signal the end of the old year and the coming of the new, King Aegon II proceeded along the street in his litter, whilst his knights rode to either side, setting their torches to the captive lambs to light his way. Thus did his grace continue up the hill to the very top, where the shepherd himself was bound amongst the heads of the five dragons. Supported by two of his king's guard, King Aegon rose from his cushions, tottered to the pole where the prophet had been chained, and set him aflame with his own hand. The broad cobbled thoroughfare had been called Hill Street, but after this incident, it has been called Shepherd's Way ever since. In the recent past of the main series, we saw a clearly mad Targaryen king, Aerys II, using fire as his primary means of punishment. Fire was Ares's justice, and here we see a glimpse of what might have been if Aegon's reign had been longer. Turning 242 rebellious subjects into human candles is neither merciful nor entirely sane, and the indications that Aegon might be suffering from a particular Targaryen state of mind do not end there. As it became clear that the capital was still under threat from a substantial number of enemies, Aegon proved deaf to all calls for reconciliation. He was interested only in vengeance and could not bring himself to issue pardons to any of the lords who had supported his half-sister. Furthermore, he would not hear of his daughter marrying Rhaenyra's son as his mother had agreed to on his behalf. Likely to Lord Boris's relief, Aegon was determined that he himself would marry Cassandra Baratheon at once and sire sons of his own. There's a possible explanation for some of Aegon's cruelties and apparent disconnect from the reality of his situation in his physical condition. His wounds from Rook's rest had left him bedridden and for a time dependent on narcotics. His confrontation with Lady Bela at Dragonstone had shattered both of his legs, only one of which had healed well. Though he had escaped his addiction to Milk of the Poppy, he remained in constant pain, something that could certainly contribute to a very dark state of mind. However, his insistence that he marry Cassandra Baratheon and sire new heirs might have been at odds with the reality of his physical condition. Mushroom suggested that Aegon's wounds had left him impotent, but he added that the king still felt carnal urges, and in typical Mushroom fashion, the story becomes positively prurient at this point. According to the dwarf, Aegon still felt carnal urges and would often watch from behind a curtain as one of his favourites coupled with a serving girl or lady of the court. Most often, Tom Tangletongue performed this task for him. We are told, at other times, certain knights of the household took the place of dishonour and thrice Mushroom himself was pressed into service. Imagine the desperation Aegon would have felt. No living child, except for a girl, whose very sex was the key issue of the war in the first place. That's what they fought over to begin with, meaning Jahara could never inherit, even if the rumors of her mental state were proved false. The only other living male Targaryen was his nephew Aegon, who the king insisted would not inherit. 
There were Damon's daughters, Bela and Reyna, barred from inheriting due to their sex, of course, as well, but either of whom could be married off to someone loyal to Aegon. However, their parentage would obviously make their loyalties suspect. Not to mention the uncomfortable possibility that Bela would simply flee from, if not murder, anyone she was forced to marry. Lady Reyna probably wouldn't go that far, but speaking of loyalties... Reyna remained firmly with the Black Camp in the Vale, and she had a dragon at recent hatchling that she called Mourning, which could make her seem more worthy of the throne than Aegon himself. Aegon needed a dragon. He craved a dragon. But aside from Mourning, only three dragons remained in Westeros. Sheepstealer, somewhere in the Vale with the girl Nettles, the cannibal still dwelling on the Dragonmont, and Queen Alysanne's Silverwing, who had made herself a lair in the middle of Red Lake in the Reach. Lord Boros urged the king to try to claim Silverwing, but how could a man who couldn't even stand make his way to a dragon's lair on an island and lay claim to her? The only answer, it seemed, was for Aegon to hatch a new egg himself. And so word was sent to Dragonstone, where the maester chose seven from amongst the Targaryen horde and sent them to King's Landing. Aegon would keep them all in his chamber, hoping against hope that one would yield a hatchling. Mushroom contributes more literal color to the story with his testimony that, quote, His grace sat on a large purple and gold egg for a day and night, hoping to hatch it, but it had as well been a purple and gold turd for all the good it did. Aside from his preoccupation with dragons and his succession, Aegon spent a great deal of his time doing several other relatively inconsequential things. In spite of House Targaryen's distinct Darth of Dragons, he commanded that the Dragon Pit be rebuilt, held a dramatic and symbolic public burning of all the decrees that had been made in the names of Tristane Truefire and Gaiman Palehair, and commissioned two statues to be built in the capital in honor of his deceased brothers, Aemond and Daron. As unimportant as this type of public work may have seemed in light of the continued hostilities in the realm, the king further ordered that these statues should exceed the size of the Titan of Bravos and be covered in gold leaf. It's not clear that Aegon had any concept of the size of the Titan of Bravos, constructed to protect the natural approach to the lagoon that sheltered the city of Bravos. The Titan's head was 400 feet above sea level, the equivalent of a 30 to 35 story building. Aegon was essentially demanding that his war torn capital commence building two skyscraper-sized colossi, and that they be covered in gold. Perhaps not the best use of crown resources following a devastating civil war that was as yet unresolved. Disconnected from reality is probably the kindest thing we can say about Aegon at this point. And once again, we can draw a parallel with Ares II, who in the future would suggest a number of extravagant building projects with little to no chance of ever becoming reality. And in the meantime... The deep divisions in Aegon's small council were starting to show, as was the hopelessness of winning this war by any means other than diplomacy, which, so far, the king and his mother had outright refused to consider. The king in check. With his half-sister slain and her only surviving son a captive at his own court, King Aegon II might reasonably have expected the remaining opposition to his rule to melt away. And mayhaps it might have done so if his grace had heeded Lord Valerian's counsel and issued a general pardon for all those lords and knights who had espoused the Queen's cause. Alas, the king was not of a forgiving mind. 
Following his return to King's Landing, Aegon did make some attempts to bring hostilities to an end, but his approach left something to be desired. Rather than listen to the wise advice of the Sea Snake, who repeatedly asserted in council that the realm needed healing and peace, Aegon set about a campaign of retribution. Determined to have revenge upon the lords of the Crownlands who had supported his sister, and with the full support of his mother, Aegon sent his men, along with Lord Baratheon and his Stormlanders, out into the Crownlands to bring the lords of Rosby, Stokeworth, and Duskendale to heal. Though the banner of Rhaenyra was lowered and replaced with that of Aegon the Elder at each holding, the lords were taken in chains and brought before the king at the Red Keep to bend their knees. Each was freed only after they had paid a ransom and agreed to provide hostages to the crown. Remember that Rhaenyra herself had hardly been gentle with these houses, executing all of their previous lords for bending their knees to Aegon early in the war. While the current lords were the heirs that had pledged their loyalties to the blacks and had been confirmed in their lordships by Rhaenyra, to say that there was resentment among them would probably be a significant understatement. Gildane characterizes the Crownlands campaign as a grave mistake, for it served to prove to Rhaenyra's supporters still in the field that they would get nothing from Aegon but vengeance. From across the north, the Riverlands, and the Vale, words soon reached King's Landing of levies being summoned and armies preparing to march. It was this news that aroused Aegon's desperate need for a dragon of his own. Without one, he must face his armies on a level playing field. Level, that is, only if he himself could summon an army of equal strength to meet those that now marched against him. On the small council, the cracks began to deepen. Corlys Velaryon continued to insist that only reconciliation and mass pardons could heal the realm. Pugnacious as ever, Lord Boros insisted he would meet their enemies in the field. His own men, plus those he could levy from the now-subdued crownlands, would suffice until the armies of the West and the Reach could be summoned. At the same time, Sir Tylan Lannister, the reinstated Master of Coin, proposed to sail to Lys or Tyrosh to hire sellswords. A frustrated sea snake rejected both proposals, reminding his fellow counselors that the lords of the West and the Reach were children whose mothers were unlikely to levy armies and lead them into the field. He also heaped scorn upon Sir Tylan's plan. Lord Corliss asserted that even if the blind master of coins somehow managed to lure a company or two of sellswords away from their contracts in the free cities, they would never arrive in time. The armies of the Riverlands in the north were marching down the King's Road now, and the army of the Vale would be coming by sea on a fleet hired from the Bravosi. His own fleet might hold off the Vale men, but who would stop the Northmen and the Riverlanders if Lord Boros couldn't hold them? The only solution, according to the Sea Snake, was diplomacy. Aegon must pardon all the lords who had fought, and were still fighting, for Rhaenyra's cause, declare Aegon the Younger his heir, and marry him to Jahera. Unfortunately, Lord Corlys used terms like must and the only way, and such absolutism was offensive to Aegon, who had other ideas. As we mentioned earlier, the king was definitely not in favor of the Aegon-Jahera marriage, and he still somehow hoped that his marriage to Lady Cassandra would yield children, and that he would hatch a new dragon, quote, a new sunfire, prouder and fiercer than the last. Furthermore, it was at this point that Aegon revealed what his intentions for his nephew actually were. He can take the black and spend his days at the wall, or else give up his manhood and serve me as a eunuch. The choice is his, but he shall have no children. My sister's line must end. 
But the king's intentions were positively gentle compared to the suggestion of his master of coin, possibly still smarting from the scorn Lord Corliss had heaped upon his plan to buy their way out of trouble with sellswords, Sir Tylan told the council that only Aegon the Younger's death would bring an end to the war. The sea snake was furious, and calling the king and his council, quote, fools, liars, and oathbreakers, he departed the council chamber. It was at this point that Lord Boros, whose dreams of being the grandsire of the next king of Westeros were threatened by the Aegon Jaehaerys solution, offered to bring the king Lord Corlys's head. It was Larys Strong who reminded his fellow counselors that Alan Valerian held the gullet, and without his support, the army of the Vale would soon be upon them, now accompanied by the men of Driftmark. Rather than threaten Lord Corlys, he said, they must speak to him gently and give him what he wanted. Time enough to renege on the deal later, when the armies in the field were dealt with. When Queen Alicent wondered what could be done to undo the damage of the threats that had already been made, Larys Strong had a ready answer. That task you may leave to me, Your Grace. His Lordship will listen to me, I dare say. Gildane suggests that the clubfoot then went directly to Lord Corlys and told him everything. The secret plan to give him what he wanted in the short term, only to murder him, and no doubt his granddaughters and their half-brother when the war was done as well. But rather than allow the sea snake to act on this knowledge, the clubfoot urged caution and secrecy. There is a better way, he said. And so the seeds were sown for the final checkmate. But now it's the midpoint of the episode and time for us to give thanks to the following patrons. The History of Westeros, Queen of Love and Beauty, from the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of Househammer, has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the wall. Their champions and captains, ship captains, Black Mato Stormrider, Captain of the Rusted Hinge, Lord Chucklaz, Captain of the Dromod Nightblood, Destroyer of Evil, John Gregor, Captain of the Fist of the Drowned God, Sir Kieran of Lonely Light, Scourge of the Sunset Sea, Captain of Naga's Breath, a Dromond armed with siphons of wildfire, Aileen, Archer Queen, Captain of the Border Collie, Crimson Kate, Captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance, Jasana the Just, Collector of Tolls, Captain of the Golden Gift, Beneath the Gold, a podcast focusing on lesser-known A Song of Ice and Fire characters. Prakash, the Lord Protector of the Gallifreyans, Captain of the Tardis of the Seven Seas. Tempest of House Brewer, Captain of the Summer Storm. Catherine the Cruel, Captain of Kraken's Claw. Lana Del Rulea, Death Dreamer, Captain of the Cyclopean Call. Nadia Storm, Mother of Worms and Wyverns, Captain of the Stygian Darkness. Hera Dark Charm, known as Lady Badluck, Captain of the Black Cat, and Prowler of the Seas. Nina the Airwave Nomad, Captain of the Nuanced Nitwit, Coaster of the Currents. Lydia the Drowner, aka Lydia the Kraken, Captain of Green Smile, a longship decorated with the rotting skulls of dead foes. Your Secret Targaryen, Captain of Boracua Machateros. And the Sellsword Captains, Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, Captain of the Weirwood Wanderers, to long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, Captain of the Red Tide, Resistance is Futile. Chiron Kylesbane, Captain of the Stone Shields, the torrent breaks upon the stone. Hema Helminth, Captain of the Whispering Children, Dead Men Tell No Secrets. Shepherd, the Shepherd of Essos, All Men Are Sheep Before the Shepherd, Heir to the Whispering Children. Lady Laxara Dajo, the Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep. Arboreal Point, Captain of the All-Female Wailing Widows, Women and Children First. 
Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune, Captain of the Shadow Wolves, our steel is cold, our vengeance colder. Black Alex Sand, the Bastard of Spears, leader of the Bermuda Vanguard. Vorian of House Betterfetter, Captain of the Golden Fetters, we face oppression with style. Aegon the Underestimated, Captain of the Clank and Dragons, our clank is clank as clank. Lady Sarah Connolly the Willful, wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure, Jenny's patron. Maester Malachi, forgotten dragon seed from the Isle of Driftmark, now in service to House Harlaw. Steve's the White, captain of the Hopeful Patriots, a band of exiled knights, motto, the world ends when hope dies. And the Northern Champions, Jay Wilson, Winter's King, Winter's King, Lord of the First Men, Lady Air Ardross, Mother of Wolves, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Claymore, Manticore, Jake Snow, aka Jacob Ice Eyes, the Bastard of the Last River, Lord Darren of House Rambler, the Last Hunt is Ceaseless, Lady Bobby of House Mitchell, Gandalf the White, Lord of House Seamorn, Sherry of Skane, Last of the Long Night Archaeologists, and Wielder of Untested Hypotheses, a Valyrian Steel Trowel, with a dragon bone handle. Lady Nicole of House Anime, the small can be powerful, captain of Sweet Camellia. Adelard the Wanderer, wielder of the Valyrian steel axe Frostfall, the bitter steel. Aaron Snow, the evergreen bastard who made a vow to defend the North with his weirwood handled axe, Timberfell. Vanessa the Outlander of House Kebby-Webby, weirwood smith. Tony of House Wallowitza, a family of war scouts, we scout the way. Sir Peter, knight of the gallows wood. Adler Snow, bastard of Bear Island, known as the Northern Fury, as fierce as she is loyal, and Lyanna Snow, the Raven in Winter. Radio Westeros Valyrian Steel patrons, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Oxheart, Blythe Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabethia and Frozen, David, Dean, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, J.M., Herbert Westeros the Miskatonic Maester, Casey, Lady Silverwing, in Fandaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Maester Paul Capuano, Mark, Boss, Schwartz the Black, the Sothorian, Sally, Samantha, Tristis Lorien, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, Tim Magnar of Houston, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Diarliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Setting the Board a side effect of the lack of dragons was that armies no longer had to fear them or plan around them, which meant a return to older ways of fighting, ways that have since remained in place into the days of A Song of Ice and Fire. This is a deeper discussion, but the point here is that it was no longer risky, if not foolish, to gather lots of men into one large army. In the early part of the dance, and with any foe that knew better, armies were kept smaller. Putting a lot of men into one place was an invitation for a dragon to wreak havoc, as the Seven Kingdoms had learned all at once when Aegon and his sisters taught that lesson at the Field of Fire. Without dragons, large armies could again be formed without risk of flame being rained down above them like another Field of Fire. Lord Cregan's host was on the march, so was Lady Jane Aaron's, while an army of rivermen was marching eastwards down the King's Road. It might have been wiser for the Riverlords to await the coming of Lord Stark and the Maiden of the Vale to form a truly huge allied army that could have assaulted King's Landing from multiple directions, overwhelming the defenses. But leadership of the Tully host had recently changed. Sadly, Lord Elmo himself had expired on the march after drinking some bad water after only nine and forty days as Lord of Riverrun, 
but the lordship had passed to his eldest son, Sir Kermit Tully, a wild and headstrong youth eager to prove himself as a warrior. They were six days' march from King's Landing, moving down the King's Road, when Lord Boros Baratheon led his Stormlanders forth to meet them, his strength bolstered by levies from Stokeworth, Rosby, Hayford, and Duskendale, along with two thousand men and boys from the stews of Fleabottom, hastily armed with spears and iron pothelms. As you can see, it wasn't just the dragons who were getting rapidly younger thanks to the war. Still, though the newly made Lord Kermit was perhaps naive in his unwillingness to wait for his allies, he had a plan in mind. It wasn't actually a simple mad dash to the capital for glory's sake. Though the Greens had the Iron Throne, they held it lightly, and there was a lot of sense in attacking before they could tighten that grip. One must consider that every soldier they bring to King's Landing to stand on the walls is worth ten outside, at least. We saw how much trouble Stannis had when his army tried to take the capital, again, to use as an example. So while waiting could make them stronger, time could help the enemy even more so. Meanwhile, in King's Landing, the text tells us that rather than take advantage of the force multiplier of King's Landing's high walls, and despite his lack of men, Lord Boros had decided to meet the foe in the field. The Battle of the King's Road the two armies came together two days from the city at a place where the King's Road passed between a wood and a low hill. It had been raining heavily for days, and the grass was wet, the ground soft and muddy. Lord Boros was confident of victory, for his scouts had told him that the rivermen were led by boys and women. It was nigh unto dusk when he spied the enemy, yet he ordered an immediate attack though the road ahead was a solid wall of shields, and the hill to its right bristled with archers. Lord Boros led the charge himself, forming his knights into a wedge, and thundered down the road at the heart of the foe, where the silver trout of river unfloated on its blue and red banner beside the quartered arms of the dead queen. His foot advanced behind them, beneath King Aegon's golden dragon. The citadel named the clash that followed the Battle of the King's Road. The men who fought it named it the Muddy Mess. From the outset of the war, Lord Boros didn't seem to think much of Rhaenyra, and while she didn't exactly give him a lot of reason to love her, he doesn't seem to have had a high opinion of women as leaders in general. To be fair, boys and women are not typically experienced in warfare in Westeros, so he wasn't entirely off base, but he was entirely overconfident. Lack of experience doesn't automatically mean unskilled or weak. It only suggests the possibility. This is why he rushed the attack, why he attacked as night was falling, and why he lost. Tywin Lannister similarly underestimated young Robb Stark, and countless men underestimated Daenerys in Slaver's Bay and elsewhere, but some people are just natural leaders or have other advantages. Not to mention Danny and Rob both had experienced advisors at their side giving good advice, which is probably true for these young leaders as well. Perhaps men like the Blackfish who knew how to pull off an ambush. Boros clearly didn't consider any of this. And speaking of ambushes, 
The longbows on the hill shot the horses out from under Lord Boris's knights as they charged, bringing down so many that less than half his riders ever reached the shield wall. Those that did found their ranks disordered, their wedge broken, their horses slipping and struggling in the soft mud. Though the Stormlanders wreaked great havoc with lance, sword and long axe, the river lords held firm as new men stepped up to fill the place of those who fell. When Lord Baratheon's foot came crashing into the fray, the shield wall swayed and staggered back, and it seemed as if it might break. Until the wood to the left of the road erupted with shouts and screams, and hundreds more rivermen burst from the trees, led by that mad boy, Benjicott Blackwood, who would this day earn the name Bloody Ben, by which he would be known for the rest of his long life. As it happened, Lord Boros saw the shield wall ahead on the road, and the archers on the hills to his right, but he missed the men hidden in the forest to his left. This is probably due to the encroaching darkness, but also his own overconfidence. It appears quite likely that the Riverlanders expected Boros to be overconfident and planned accordingly. Note the discipline that was in place here. The ambush wasn't sprung until all of the Stormlanders were engaged, even though they were inflicting significant casualties on the Riverlands' shield wall in the meantime. Looking back, had Lord Boros waited for daylight, he might not have been caught so badly off guard by this ambush, if at all. It might not have been so easy to conceal those extra men in the forest in the daylight. That group was led by Lord Benjicott Blackwood, and his new nickname, Bloody Ben, most likely derives from the heavy casualties he and his men inflicted on the Stormlanders via this ambush. Picture it. The battle begins with a furious charge by the Knights of the Stormlands. As their horses are gradually slowed by the mud, the archers in turn gradually have an easier job shooting them. And horses are easier to hit. They're larger and have less armor than their riders. Once a horse is disabled... The rider, with all that heavy armor, now has to slog through the mud on foot, uphill. And though there was no rainfall during the battle itself, there were plenty of arrows and spears raining down. Those who made it through all that danger began hacking away at the shield wall, and their supporting infantry began to follow them up the hill. The Stormlanders were fierce enough that, despite what they had endured to reach the enemy lines, they might have won, if not for Bloody Ben's ambush. Still, even that might not have been enough. Despite facing enemies on three sides, Lord Boros did not waver. Though many of his men had fallen and terrain was working against him, he had one last move he could make. Lord Boros himself was still a horse in the middle of the carnage. When he saw the battle slipping away, his lordship bade his squire sound his warhorn, signaling his reserve to advance. Upon hearing the horn, however, the men of Rosby, Stokeworth, and Hayford let fall the king's golden dragons and remained unmoving. The rabble from King's Landing scattered like geese, and the knights of Duskendale went over to the foe, attacking the Stormlanders in the rear. Battle turned to rout in half a heartbeat as King Aegon's last army shattered. If Lord Boros had been winning, the reserve might have stayed loyal, which brings us back to his hasty decision to attack at night without full reconnaissance and with full overconfidence. 
But Lord Boros was indeed not winning, and so many of them either refused to fight or simply ran away because they had never wanted to fight in the first place. It was Lord Boros who had forced them to march after humiliating their lords, and if he was about to lose his army, then they were free not to participate. The Knights of Duskendale had probably been forced just like the rest, but rather than an opportunity to escape, they saw an opportunity to be on the winning side again. This may have been personal. Lord Darklin may have been hoping for such an opportunity for some time, ever since Sir Criston Cole had executed the prior Lord Darklin, sacked Duskendale, and burned their port shortly after becoming Hand of the King. On the other hand, neither Rhaenyra nor Aegon had managed to win the true loyalty of the other Crownlanders, remembering that in addition to their latest humiliation by Aegon, Rhaenyra had ordered the execution of the prior lords Rosby and Stokeworth after having their tongues removed for the offense of bending their knees to her brother. All of which is perhaps why they simply refused to participate rather than aiding the blacks. They might have also realized that hiding in their castles might actually work now, unlike when there were dragons aplenty. Besides which, by this stage in the war, we'd seen lots of houses switch sides for a variety of reasons. It had become almost common. So many houses had swapped their green banners for black or vice versa that it became increasingly difficult to see it as a matter of honor, or at least one that very few could claim, if they even cared about that in the first place. But we're not suggesting that Lord Tully and his allies simply hoped this would happen. Rather, it's entirely possible there may have been some kind of arrangement made ahead of time with these lords of the Crown Lands. Perhaps a message sent to Lord Darklin with a reminder of what had happened to his predecessor at the hands of Sir Criston? Still, the simplest answer may be the most accurate, and it's entirely possible they simply took advantage of the fluid nature of this war to make sure they won. Or, at least, didn't lose. Regardless, this was another of Lord Boros's mistakes, as all of this should have been apparent, and yet it's another example of his pride. A wise commander sends his least trustworthy troops in first exactly because they are the least trustworthy. You can't rely on them helping when you need it most, and they might just stab you in the back, like this. But Boros wanted the victory for the Stormlanders and himself, not for his conscripts. Why let the glory go to them? And from his perspective, he likely thought it would be an easy victory. But just imagine if he had simply manned the walls of King's Landing and consolidated his hold over the king instead. Bringing battle to the Riverlanders turned out to be quite a fatal mistake in a war filled with poor leadership and both war and politics. So it's fitting. It's also fitting that the last battle of the war was fought in the mud, where so many of the prior battles had been fought in the skies. Again, how the mighty have fallen into the mud this time. The young leaders of the winning side would become known as the Lads, comprised of Lord Kermit Tully, his brother Sir Oscar, and Lord Benjicott Blackwood, now known as Bloody Ben. The Lads had key supporters amongst the nobility, especially Lady Sabbath of Frey, and Bloody Ben's aunt, Alison Blackwood, also known as Black Alley. When Lord Boros referred to the women and boys leading this army, it was these two and the three lads that he met. Black Alley was already famous for avenging her lord brother's death in battle by shooting a weirwood arrow through the eye slit of his killer, Sir Amos Bracken, during the Battle of the Burning Mill, which we covered way back in episode two of this series. 
Black Alley played a key role in this battle as well, personally targeting Lord Boros and the men close to him. Unhorsed when his destrier was felled by arrows from Black Alley and her bowmen, he battled on a foot, cutting down countless men-at-arms, a dozen knights, and the Lords Malister and Darry. By the time Kermit Tully came upon him, Lord Boros was dead upon his feet, bareheaded, bleeding from a score of wounds, scarce able to stand. Yield, sir, called the Lord of Riverrun to the Lord of Storm's End. The day is ours. Lord Baratheon answered with a curse, saying, I'd sooner dance in hell than wear your chains. Then he charged straight into the spiked iron ball at the end of Lord Kermit's morning star, which took him full in the face in a grisly spray of blood and bone and brain. The Lord of Storm's End died in the mud along the king's road, his sword still in his hand. Shot down by a woman, killed by a boy. If we're going by his terminology anyway, Lord Barros gets no points in the thinking category. But he does get points for keeping up the theme of the conflict with his dancing in hell comment. Dancing, right? Yeah, good job. And wowed him for keeping his sword in hand, even after his face exploded. Despite his arrogant mistakes, he's definitely getting into the Westeros version of Valhalla. Lord Boros was one of the more inconsistent lords of the dance, but his indeed was the fury during the muddy mess. And before that, he did have a temper after all. But at the end of the day, being more furious than your opponent didn't really help all that much, if it ever does. Consider how easily it would have gone for him if he had simply yielded. Lord Boros would not have worn chains long. As the Lord of Storm's End, he would have been treated well, then released for a ransom. It would have included him bending the knee, but although Rhaenyra had scorched his pride and he hadn't forgotten, it wouldn't even have been to her that he would have to bend the knee, since she was already dead. But thanks to pride and fury, in this moment, he preferred death. Or at least, that's what we're told. Good time to remind ourselves that quotes spoken in the midst of battle are never meant to be taken too literally. Real-life history is full of examples of battlefield speeches and quotes that are almost certainly the invention of historians, or mostly so. Westeros is no different. That said, this one seems entirely believable for Lord Boros, who had a reputation for extreme stubbornness, pride, and temper. It also fits very well, given the history of the lords and kings of Storm's End, whose founder was so stubborn he defied the gods themselves and won. By comparison, Lord Boros defied a Muppet and lost. Or perhaps his face defied a Morningstar. Take your pick. Or all of the above. It all works. Either way, it's not easy being green, which is why Lord Kermit fought for the Blacks, alongside his father, Elmo. But against the wishes of his recently deceased great-grandfather, Grover, who had preferred Egg on the Second's claim. But neither Lord Grover nor Lord Boros had a say anymore. A huge portion of the houses had a change at their head, including many of the great ones. This moment reminds us of the Battle of the Last Storm, in which Ori's Baratheon defeated Argelac the Arrogant in single combat after a long and bitter slugfest in the mud. Lord Boros, a descendant of both men, may have been closer in age to Ori's, but his death was more like Argelac's, who knew he had lost but couldn't bear to bend the knee and or wanted a death worthy of his Storm King ancestry. King Argelac left the bodies of many foes around him before he fell, just as Lord Boros did. And in both cases, 
the younger man offered clemency, and in both cases it was refused. In both cases there was also a curse before that one final charge. Though he wouldn't be the last to die before all was settled, Lord Boros would be the last lord to die in battle during the war. Lucerius Valarian's shade might feel some measure of justice here. Luke's death, which took place at Storm's End under Lord Boros's watch, ensured the War of Letters and Envoys became a war in truth. Then a case can be made that Lord Boros's death, as King Aegon's last army shattered, we're told, ensured that the war would finally come to an end. Lord Boros's death also left behind a bit of a succession problem because he had no sons, but his wife Elenda Caron was pregnant. So they had to wait to see if this new baby would be a son who could inherit Storm's End or if it would pass to Boros's eldest daughter, Cassandra. This had the potential to create an entirely new set of problems because Cassandra was betrothed to Aegon II. In other words, the succession of Storm's End and the succession of the Iron Throne itself were, at this point, somewhat intertwined. Not to mention that Aegon's reign was looking awfully perilous now that his father-in-law-to-be was dead and his army scattered. And indeed, as we'll see shortly, it was his only remaining army. So now the king had no army, no dragon, no brothers, horrible health problems that probably included an inability to sire new heirs, and his existing heir seems to have been born mentally handicapped and was a girl. As we've noted, a girl would have been acceptable enough to the blacks, but Aegon's claim rested in part on the assertion that women couldn't inherit the Iron Throne if there was a male claimant available. And ironically, the only male Targaryens left were Rhaenyra's sons. Hoisted by their own petard, Westerosi style. A green petard, to be sure. Not only did the blacks have more fashionable petards, they had more loyal soldiers and armies throughout Westeros. And more importantly, they had the only army in the vicinity of King's Landing, with more on the way. On top of which, they had naval superiority with control of most of the seas around Westeros, including Blackwater Bay, meaning King's Landing, Dragonstone, and Driftmark, among others in the hands of House Valarian, who had probably never really supported Aegon, in spite of Lord Corlys's presence on his council. And the Blacks had the only dragon, and the only male claimant who could presumably sire heirs. It was almost overwhelming, but we've seen so many advantages squandered during this war that nothing could be certain especially since the Greens held the Blacks' claimant hostage and still had the most important thing of all, the Iron Throne itself. Given the walls of King's Landing and the Red Keep, it wouldn't be a matter of simply marching in and taking it. A short, sad reign. When the Ravens brought word of the battle back to the Red Keep, the Green Council hurriedly convened. All of the Sea Snake's warnings had proved true. Before heading out to meet the army of the Riverlands, Lord Boros had essentially claimed that he would hold off the rebels in order to give time for the West and the Reach to muster their armies and come to the king's defense. Unfortunately, the lords of Casterly Rock and Highgarden were children, and as Lord Corlys had warned, their mothers, acting as their regents, appeared to be sick and tired of this entire conflict— in the West, Lady Johanna Lannister and what force remained to her were busy dealing with Dalton Greyjoy, the Red Kraken, and his continual assaults on their coast. Lady Tyrell sent word from Highgarden that she wasn't sure of the loyalty of their bannermen, adding, Being a mere woman, I am not myself fit to lead a host to war. 
Meanwhile, even the Dowager Queen's kinsfolk in Old Town sent their regrets, stating that they had lost too many men and commanders in earlier battles. With Tylan Lannister not yet returned from his mission to find sellswords, a mission that the Sea Snake had warned was doomed to fail, it seemed obvious to most that the Crown could no longer mount a credible defense of King's Landing. Up the King's Road, the Riverlanders were no more than two days' march away, and Lord Cregan Stark's army of Northmen, referred to by Septon Eustace as 20,000 howling savages and shaggy pelts, was not far behind. Nor was there safety in the east, where an errant army of nearly 10,000 had left Gulltown aboard a Ravosi fleet. With them was Lady Raina Targaryen and her dragon Morning, the last Targaryen dragon, still a hatchling, but a potent symbol nonetheless. In the gullet, only Alan Valarian and the ships of Driftmark sat in their way, and as we said, their loyalty was far from certain. For his part, the Sea Snake would once again counsel peace when the remnant of the Green Council met in the Red Keep. Interestingly, George uses the phrase, quote, the rump of the once proud Green Council to describe this group. This is most likely a real world historical reference to the rump parliament of 17th century England. It was this parliament during the English Civil War, which would execute King Charles I, the first and only English king to be tried and executed by parliament. Not a great portent for Aegon the Elder, not a parallel he would appreciate. Pointing out that King's Landing couldn't endure another sack may have been the Sea Snake's diplomatic way of telling Aegon that he couldn't hope to defend said city with no more than the very dubious city watch. His suggestion that Aegon surrender in favor of his nephew was less diplomatic, but no less honest. There was now no hope for a military victory for the Greens, and Lord Corliss made so bold as to suggest that the king would be allowed to take the black. But since the counselors were being honest, Queen Alicent laid another truth before her son. He had fed Aegon the Younger's mother to his dragon and forced the boy to watch. It seemed unlikely that the king would be rewarded with clemency for that act. And so she suggested a different course of action. You have hostages? Cut off one of the boy's ears and send it to Lord Tully. Warn them he will lose another part for every mile they advance. Sir Alfred Broom was nearby when Allison made the suggestion, and Aegon immediately sent him to execute it. It was Broom who had, by some accounts, been the one who dragged Rhaenyra before Aegon and Sunfire at Dragonstone. He had also repeatedly urged the king to kill his two hostages, Aegon the Younger and his half-sister Bela, and was the one who had executed Tristane Truefire in the throne room of the Red Keep. In short, he was a brute who did not hesitate to harm women and children. In fact we could be forgiven for a bit of character assassination. Indications are that he probably enjoyed it. With Broom off about his mission, the king reminded Lord Corlys that the crown also held his granddaughter Bela. Should Alan Valerian fail to stop the Bravosi fleet carrying the army of the Vale, Aegon declared that Bela would, quote, lose some parts as well. Without a word, the sea snake left the council chamber. Exit Aegon the Elder. Aegon's day was done, though he had yet to grasp it. The turncloaks in his midst had put their plans in motion the moment they learned of Lord Baratheon's defeat upon the King's Road. Gildane tells us that the coup that ended the Dance of the Dragons once and for all was achieved so quickly and quietly that very few people in King's Landing, and even inside the Red Keep itself, 
were aware of what was happening. The plans, he said, had been put in motion by the plotters the moment they learned of Lord Baratheon's defeat upon the King's Road. But we shouldn't forget that secret conversation that Lara Strong allegedly had with Corlys Valerian before Lord Boros ever marched north. The coup may very much have been the better way that the clubfoot had hinted at on that earlier occasion. Alfred Broom was met at the gates of Magor's Holdfast by Sir Perkin and six of his knights, all men, we might guess, loyal to Lara Strong. When Broom demanded that they move aside in the name of the king, Perkin's reply was simple, both in word and deed. We have a new king now, answered Sir Perkin. He put a hand upon Sir Alfred's shoulder, then shoved him hard, sending him staggering off the drawbridge onto the iron spikes below, where he writhed and twisted for two days as he died. Excuse us for not mourning his death, nor the manner of it. Meanwhile, Larry Strong had made arrangements to move Lady Bela to a place of safety, while a number of the men most loyal to Aegon the Elder were quietly executed. Tom Tangletongue was caught and killed in the castle yard while his father was found at a tavern in Eel Alley. Upwards of two dozen men were killed, including, according to Mushroom, the king's food taster, and more on that shortly. Queen Alicent was arrested on the Serpentine Stairs by men wearing the sigil of House Valarian. Two of her guards were killed, but the Dowager Queen herself was unharmed, as were her ladies. Once again, Alicent was chained. She would await a decision as to her fate in the castle dungeon. By the time she arrived there... The last of her children were dead. Aegon had left the council chamber carried by two squires, as was normal. The king's injuries made stairs an impossibility for him, and so he was carried around the Red Keep in a litter. On this occasion, rather than return to his chambers, he asked to be taken to the castle sept. Maybe he wanted to pray for forgiveness for the cruelties he had just ordered, but even that much is speculation, since Aegon never uttered another word or command. Accompanied by Sir Giles Belgrave of the King's Guard, the litter crossed the castle and arrived at the sept. Not getting a response to his statement that they had arrived, Sir Giles repeated himself twice before drawing back the curtains of the litter. Inside, the king was dead, with no signs of violence other than a small amount of blood on his lips. It would later be revealed that the flagon of sweet arbor red that he always had kept in the litter had been laced with poison, the tears of Lys, which should be very familiar to readers of A Song of Ice and Fire. The question that was never solved is who exactly put the poison in the wine? Some have pointed the finger at Sir Giles, and though Gildane asserts that it was unthinkable for a knight of the King's Guard to harm the king, it must be noted that Sir Giles hailed originally from the Vale, which had largely been for Rhaenyra during the war due to her mother being an Aaron. Also, Jamie Lannister says hello from 150 years in the future. <laughs> Others point to the newly deceased food taster, Ummit. And this is also a strong possibility since the rationale for the plotters killing such a lowly servant of the king is otherwise somewhat lacking. There can be no doubt, though, that whether it was one of the two likely candidates or some other unknown person, the poisoning was likely done through the agency of Lord Larry Strong, who had clearly conspired with Corlys Velaryon to bring about the final downfall of the Green Branch of House Targaryen. The shepherd's prophecies had mostly come true. He said both king and queen would be cast down, and they were. He told Lord Baratheon he'd meet him in hell within the year, and that was true too. Then he repeated those words to King Aegon, and sure enough, they also came to pass. 
I suppose they had themselves a lovely gathering down there in hell. When the Riverlands army arrived at the city gates two days later, Lord Corliss met them outside the walls with young Aegon III by his side. Across Blackwater Bay, as Lord Leowin Corbray and the rest of the Vale army looked on from their hired Bravosi fleet, Alan Valerian lowered the golden dragon of Aegon II from his own fleet's masts and replaced it with the red dragon of the first Aegon, which had served as the banner of the ruling house since the conquest, symbolizing once and for all the end of the war and the hope of a return to normalcy. The king is dead. Long live the king. Let's note the cyclical near karmic ending for Aegon. He and his family seized power via a coup within the Red Keep and in turn lost it to another coup within the Red Keep to the very family they seized the throne from. All orchestrated by men who had been playing the game since before the war even began. But just because the Greens were out of Targaryen men and there were no battles to be fought, well, those men hadn't escaped consequences just yet. Not everyone would be pleased at how they handled all this. Poison is foul and dishonorable to many, after all, and at least one of the men who held those opinions had a very large army and was on the way. Enter Aegon the Younger. On the seventh day of the seventh moon of the 131st year after Aegon's conquest, a date deemed sacred to the gods, the High Septon of Old Town pronounced the marriage vows as Prince Aegon the Younger, eldest son of Queen Rhaenyra by her uncle Prince Daemon, wed Princess Jahira, the daughter of Queen Helena by her brother King Aegon II, thereby uniting the two rival branches of House Targaryen and ending two years of treachery and carnage. Lord Corliss, greeting the army of the Riverlands with his young kinsman by his side, feels in many ways intentional. That is, all of the advice he gave in the small council after he was restored following Rhaenyra's death appears to have led to that moment. Given his continued push for reconciliation and pardons, for Aegon the Younger to be named as his uncle's heir, and his own heir's actions in first slowing Aegon's return and later in parking the Valyrian fleet in the gullet, we have to wonder if by joining the Greens, Corlys was merely playing for time to allow the armies of the North, Riverlands, and Vale to come into play. Gildane and the histories say Aegon II ruled for two years. That is extremely generous, given that for more than half of that time, he was either confined to his chamber while his younger brother ruled post-Rook's rest, or on Dragonstone while Rhaenyra held King's Landing for half a year, which was followed by the Moon of the Three Kings, and then the period when he was forced to wait until Alan Valerian agreed to give him safe passage across Blackwater Bay, Let's face it, his actual reign, as defined by possession of the Iron Throne, wasn't much longer than that of his sister, who, though she ruled for half a year, is usually left off the list of Targaryen monarchs completely. Something about history being written by the victors, though in this case male maesters, may be more to the point. Those same two years also defined the length of the conflict known as the Dance of the Dragons, with two siblings each claiming the throne, one of whom had the prior king's blessing on their side while the other had the weight of generations of tradition on theirs, 
and with both stubbornly refusing to yield what they viewed as their rights, it was always bound to be a war of attrition. The dance of the dragons was done, and the melancholy reign of King Aegon III Targaryen had begun. We started this episode with a quote from Gildane's history about the reign of King Viserys I. To paraphrase, Viserys' reign was viewed as the apex of Targaryen power. There were, he states, quote, more lords and princes claiming the blood of the dragon than at any period before or since, and there were more dragons than ever before as well. Two years after Viserys' death, there were less than a handful of Targaryens remaining, all of them children, and even fewer dragons. Imagine if Queen Alicent and her father had been content to let Rhaenyra inherit as her father intended. All of Alicent's children would likely have been married and had offspring who would have been as likely as their parents to have dragons of their own. Rhaenyra's five sons, and perhaps even more, would have also lived and bred and passed on their dragon-riding abilities to their children in turn. Damon's daughters may have grown into as exceptional dragon riders as their parents had been, similarly passing on the blood of the dragon to another generation. From 20 living dragons at the time of Viserys' death, House Targaryen might have boasted dozens of dragons under their control by the next generation. Instead, only four remained, and, as we've said, three of those were outside of their control. The fourth, Reyna Targaryen's mourning, was a hatchling that the new king, her half-brother, would suffer to be in his presence due to the post-traumatic stress of having witnessed his uncle's dragon eat his mother alive. The deaths of so many dragons, actual and metaphorical, came at a heavy cost to both House Targaryen and the realm. Some of those deaths, like Aegon's children, Jaehaerys and Maelor, and Rhaenyra's Lucerys and Joffrey, feel senseless, children caught in the crossfire of their parents' arguments. Even Jaehaerys, Rhaenyra's eldest son, Princess Rhaenys, and Daron the Daring, who all perished on dragonback in battle, need not have died if their kin had only listened to those who warned about the horrors of a dragon-on-dragon -dragon conflict. Prince Aemon and his uncle Daemon even more so had legendary deaths, which were a good example of how the war went, both sides seemingly willing to die to kill the other. Their dragons exemplify this to an even greater degree. In the final battle between those two princes, the, the riders had no control over their fall. It was up to the dragons to flap their wings and, you know, not plummet into the ground or lake or what have you. But Vagar and Caraxes were so intent on killing each other, at fighting at all costs, that they didn't fight their bigger common enemy. Gravity. <laughs> this is the mindset of a dragon. Kill the enemy and damn the consequences, death included, even when it is coming at you with astonishing speed. The greens and blacks seem to have behaved like dragons throughout, all too willing to choose killing over surviving. And the results? Death? Destruction, devastation, the de-dragoning of House Targaryen. Though his fear and hatred of dragons would lead to him being called Dragonbane, the new king, Rhaenyra's son, would go on to rule for more than 25 years. So you might say the Blacks won in the end, except that they lost so much, it's kind of hard to call it winning. It's another Pyrrhic victory, but even worse than that, perhaps. The loss of their dragons, and let's face it, who can blame Aegon the Younger for never wanting to see another dragon as long as he lived, would result in the fabled blood of the dragon becoming almost like any other royal dynasty, subject to the same quirks of fate and political intrigues as all the mere mortals whom they had previously set themselves above with dragons. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Every good dance needs an after party. 
There is more to come as Aegon the Younger is seated upon the throne by his mother's supporters and justice arrives in King's Landing in the form of the Lord of Winterfell, who had once pledged his support to Rhaenyra and his heir's marriage to Jaceres' future daughter in the so-called Pact of Ice and Fire. We'll cover all that and more in Part 7. Or should we say, Party 7. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this sixth installment of our deep dive into the Dance of the Dragons. And now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to Ashea and Yokeboy, the producers of this episode, both video and audio formats. Kevin McLeod and Kai Angle for allowing us to use their music in our productions. Michael Klarfeld slash Claridox.de, Joey Townsend, Jesse Koval for the music. And as always, thanks to George R. Martin for the history and the dragons. And finally, we'll close by giving thanks to our patrons. Consider being a supporter, and you could hear your name here, too. Thanks to the Radio Westeros Castle Steel patrons. Atori Loon, AJ, Aegon VI, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Asha Not Yara, Oakenfist, Bran the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Cassandra, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Sir Clint the Andal, Convenience or Death, Courtney, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Lady Deanna Dane, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Gerald Garcia, Sir Gladworth, Sir Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Ingvild, Isaac, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Ares, writer of the Ice Dragon Sonorian, The White Storm, Julie Beth of Tarth, Ara Finway Inglorion, Judson, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Kenneth, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Lynn, Lomas Knight Rider, survivor of the Yeen Sleepover. I would not want to sleep there. Lord Layton with the Highest Tower, Mage Marmot, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margaretha, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, Matt M, and Matt R, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Molly, Nimble Nick on Eric, Patrick, Peter Pebble, Peter, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, King Ray, first of his name, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Gray, Sir Larzalot of B Hill, Sheila, Soren, that shiny bastard, the rat chef de cuisine, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Valen, Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Kawaran Halfhand, and Yvonne. And the following history of Westeros patrons. Their Hand of the King is a baseborn man-jack, literally just a drunken spearman, gods help us. Lord Giuliano of House Yu, Hand of Queen Ashea, known as the Omni Knight. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, find it here, and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad, and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods, and Warden of the North. Lord Donnerus Pular, Head of House Pular, Lord of Amora, and Warden of the South. Jenny the Just, Captain of the Ghost Ship Liberty, which vanished in the Shivering Sea over a century ago, but has recently been sighted near Volantis, if the tales can be believed. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse, the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of dragonglass, and the Valyrian steel blade, Red Frost. Sea Lord Sean Gallagher, the Titan's Binger, owner of nine Valyrian steel ears. The Bastard of the Bay of Seals, a friend of the Night's Watch, commanding a ship made entirely of weirwood. 
and the White Walkers, Alexander Greyblood, first to the first men, now crowned in ice, called Silence Bringer, Woodblinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the Ice Forge Greatsword, Pale Frost. Nevada Pike, fourth of Frost, Frost Kraken, drowned in ice, commander of Cats and Krakens. And the Kingsguard, Lady Commander, Lady Megan of House Yinzer, Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star, Sir Bateman the Dark Knight, Lady Annie, bringer of Winter's Warning, watcher in the Weirwood, bearer of Wrist Wolves, Lord Jonathan of House Tanner, Lord Raydetto of House Avocado, protector of the Royal Kitchens, green in the morning, dark by evening. And the Queen's Guard, Lord Captain Commander Hama Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, James the Green, Lord of the Meadows, Keeper of the Child of Grasses, Amber the Adamant, the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids, the Wintry Wolverine, we finish what you begin, Noroniko, Archmaester Vena, whose ring and rod and mask are made of steel, not pudding, Laura Boris, the Lady of Infinity, and the Beard Guard, Lord Commander George the Golden, Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor. Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the Multifaceted Beard of Platinum, Red and Brown. Stay Frosty. Bloody Ben Blackwood, Big Brian Blackwood, and Davin Mack, Knight of the Reeds, the Bog Knight. And the Small Council, Lord Taylor of House Lineberry, Strength of Stone, Will of Iron, Master of Coin. Lord Chris B. of House Baelish, Always keep your foes confused, Master of Whispers. Drowned Dan, Lord of House Windsor, Master of Karate, Friendship for Everyone and Ships. Lord Goodkill McGee, Ruler of Castle Over Yonder, Master of Laws, and Grand Maester Scotty. And the lords and ladies in their castles, Lady Dialers of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Ashlyn Winter, the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall, the Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete, Everglazed, Lord Bammy Snugglebunny, Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Weirwood, Dual Wielder of Valyrian Short Swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Light Wise, Sharpshooter of the Weirwood and Ironwood Laminated Longbow, Todd Von Oben, When You Fear Things Cannot Get Worse, Snuggle Bunny Enters the Fray, The Bastard of the Wolfswood, First Forester of the Old Gods, Sworn to House Iron Weirwood, Listen for the Silence, Casey Stark of House Acres, Peter Rivers, The Pale Dragon, and Heir to Blood Raven, Lady Mora of House Stark, Archmistress of Apothecaries and Woods Witch, Her Castle Features Weirwood Doors with Painted Moons, Lena Snow, The Twilight Star, Bastard Daughter of Dane, Wife of the Trickster, and Lady of Castle Rivia, Jason Stark, Second Son of the North, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Sword, Bloodbath, Lord of Castle Whitewood, The Chill is Real. Suck-Ass Gamer, Master of Soap and Clay. I'm into Pink Wolf, Lady and Ruler of Castle Whitebast, The Ice Emboldens. Lady Adeline of Sea Dragon Point, Keeper of Trees, Warmth in Frost. Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Lady Rebecca Stark of Castle Aurora, Wielder of a Weirwood Bow with Valyrian Steel-Tipped Arrows and Friend of Short Round the Direwolf. Aurelian Matthias Rhesius, Lord of House Aurelian, Ruler of Domus Aurelianus, and the Valley of Tanasi, Wielder of Sol Invictus, Keeper of the largest collection of books outside the Citadel, We Restore the World. Lord Garin of Devil's Hand Keep, Lady Jane of House Zeltigar, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe, Painkiller, Lord Darien the Daring, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Sword, Wisdom, Lord of House Hollingsworth, and the Hollyhold in Dorn, Power and Knowledge, Sir Garrett Gabehart, Lord of the Bluegrass, and the Queen's High Council, 
Grand Archmaester Rennie, whose ring and rod and mask are quartz crystal, wielder of the Valyrian steel pen, fire and ink. The Purple Lord, Leo Anansi, Master of Whisperers. Lady Wolfbird, Mistress of the Eastern Rivers, Gatekeeper of the Northern Skies, Daughter of the Silver Sea, and Master of Coin. Devorlin Blackwood, Maker of the Frozen Fury Muscle Bomb, Eucalyptus and Mint Leaves, Washed with Dornish Peppers and Sealed by Fire Ants. Master of Laws. Lady Jane of Driftmark, Guardian of Dragonstone, The Circling Flame Burns, Master of Ships. Lady Sonia of Sunspear, Keeper of the Martel Menagerie, Master of Castle Tormira Topanga, Tame and Keep Well, Master of Whisperers. The History of Westeros Night's Watch, Lord Commander Richard de Ligerhart, Wielder of Barry's Ankle Breaker, a flail with blue and silver Valyrian steel spikes, motto, Go Blue. First Builder Magor Snow, aka Magor the Cool, The Fire in the Snow. First Ranger Liam, also known as Sir Waiting on a Nickname, and First Steward Sir Zack of House Wild, Lord Shredder of the Spiral, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe Grail. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you all soon with new episodes of Radio Westeros and History of Westeros. Valar Reredus. Bye for now.